mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yes, have you, did you recommend the Ghost Story podcast? No, but, uh, but lots of people have thanked me for recommending know, it, so weird, I'm just going to say well, it's absolutely fine. Well, I've, I've downloaded it now on the strength of the recommendation you didn't make. And I'm going to listen to it. So the worrying thing is uh, that there are some people who are really, really certain that their favourite podcast recommended it. And that means you're listening to something else. But uh, we're happy to just stay in your top three. That'll be OK. Uh, but yes, I'm going to download it too, because the latest one that came in, it sounds like it's absolutely... Yeah, this is from Emily. Up our alley. Yep. Uh, I'm just writing to say that you must listen to the Ghost Story podcast. Uh, it's great. I listened to the whole thing in one day over Christmas while doing my Christmas jigsaw, starting with tea and ending with wine. How big was the puzzle? I think that's probably maybe a thousand pieces. Uh, I'd seen it recommended in top 10 lists of 2023 podcasts in The Times. And I'm emphasising that because you then go on to say it's by a BBC journalist oh, who's tracking down an old murder mystery in his family house, uh, his wife's family. It's gripping. I loved it. I really recommend uh, so we'll take that, Emily. I've got another one uh, from Bonnet who says, um, I loved Ghost Story. It was Fee's recommendation. It wasn't, but anyway. Uh, I don't need to say that with quite so much relish. <laughs> Enthusiasm. I don't usually listen to true it's crime worry, Kate. or ghost worry. stories, but uh, this one really was fascinating. I love the fact the presenter explored all angles, including a seance, family members, the police and pathologists. What was even more fascinating was how little the family knew about the wonderful Dr Naomi Dancy. Uh, while I didn't reach a conclusion on what had happened, I was satisfied to have the good doctor's contributions restored as part of the wider Dancy family history. OK, it's got a bit niche there because neither of us know anything about it because we haven't heard a single episode yet. Uh, but we're both going to listen to it. Bono, thank you for your recommendation as well. Uh, two intelligent people who say it's really good. And um, I don't know, it does say it sounds fascinating. Most of us don't know all that much about our great, great, great grandparents, do we? No. Uh, have you been to a seance? No, but I do know people who do believe in them, actually. And I made a programme once, Jane, about uh, shared experiences that people had. And we did do I Saw a Ghost. And the incredible thing was, I don't know whether you might have a kind of slightly stereotypical image in your mind of the type of people who might see ghosts. I think a lot of people do. And I think a lot of people, uh, it's a slightly kind of pejorative image as well that these people were completely different. Some of them have PhDs. 
They were very rational people. One was a one was a science person who was a physicist. You know, so that to me, the the absolute need for fact, you know, often precludes people from believing in the woo woo. But they'd all definitely, definitely seen a ghost and yeah. could describe them all. Well, I, I don't like to disbelieve. Them. I no, I'm not going to trample on other people's lived experiences because they're very real to them. Yeah, and it's not Halloween. But I, I a bit like you, I, I, I'm, I wouldn't dismiss all that sort of stuff in a hurry. No, I'd be scared to go to a séance though. I would, I wouldn't. You know, I'm quite happy to believe that people believe, but I don't want it proved to me because that would be too freaky for me. Well, if somebody contacts you from the other side. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, genuinely. Uh, I, I I'd don't, be all right if it was someone from Talk Sport. I don't want to be... I don't want to be contacted. I've, I've got I've got my uh, emotional human voicemail on for those messages. Uh, this one comes from Rachel. He says, "Dear Jane and Fee, I have quite fair hair, but I have inexplicably many dark, thick chin and moustache hairs that need almost daily plucking, plus a couple of rogues on my cheeks and necks. Perhaps I'm half yeti. Uh, anyway, one thing I've long worried about is that one day I'm incapacitated. Will it all just grow? What would family and friends?" think if they came to visit me and my true nature was revealed. Obviously there are much bigger things about that situation but the hair is concerning. I have a pack with a similarly hirsute friend that in that situation will visit the other regularly with tweezers but I think an extension of your dentist hair removal could be a sort of insurance policy for such circumstances. Rachel, I am totally, totally with you. Um, on a previous podcast Jane and I did discuss this and I have a PBV friend which is a please bring Veet friend who is if I were ever to slip into a coma is going to come and do hair removal for me mm -hmm. because it is one of the things and I'm with you girlfriend it's not the biggest thing about that situation other people would be affected by me being in a coma but I'm worried about the hair so yes PBV and and we also did discuss uh, the fact that that should be on a form somewhere so you can have DNR the do not resuscitate and you can have PBV just to alert people within the hospital environment that you'd like the occasional tweak right um okay um how would they do it with tweezers well I think so I mean I think you could specify okay how you'd want it but I just think it's a I think a lot of people have had that thought and it's one of those weird things isn't it in um you know in the tv and the drama and the films you know quite frequently when you see people in comas you know they they stay the same six months down the line in the drama to how they were you know when they entered the hospital and that's not the reality no. at, you know of course that can't be the reality and um it's wrong, Jane. That I, needs to I change. suspect after any time in a coma, I'd, I'd look like cat weasel and it would be... Well, I can be your PBV friend, but you just have to alert me. You have to give me the permission. I don't know. I'm going Do you want wax or a cream, love? I'm going to mull that one over. <laughs> See, who would I... Which, which of my glittering array... Well, I think it says a lot, doesn't it? I've not asked you to be mine. <laughs> I don't think... Well, I couldn't be trusted with a sharp implement. <laughs> Um, Helen says, after hearing your listener on Monday's episode discuss the lost art of stamping library books, I felt compelled to share with you a related story from my own childhood. My dear departed dad was a secondary school head teacher and one of the very few perks of his job was that he used to bring home unwanted school paraphernalia, such as PE whistles. Gosh, I mean, the no nights must have flown by in this household with PE whistles coming home every couple of weeks uh, and various bits of stationery. 
There were different days, folks, when schools did have spare stationery, says Helen. Uh, one time that sticks in my memory is the wondrous afternoon he brought home for me, his then six-year-old daughter, a school library book, Stamper. I loved it. It quickly became a staple of my imaginative game, Libraries, where I would carry armfuls of books downstairs and arrange them onto every surface of the lounge, ready for my queue of dolls and teddies, eager to take out books such as Brambley Hedge or Enid Blyton. For some reason that I cannot fathom, I decided to dub said library stamper a dicker. I had three very much older brothers, in fact I still do, but now they're really old, who, as you can imagine, found it really hilarious that I would occasionally shout downstairs to my poor mum, I can't find my dicker, who took my dicker? I loved my dicker. It's still the stuff of family folklore, and I've kept many of the childhood games which have holes or huge marks on their first pages, where I'd obviously dickered them. Oh, sorry, childhood books, I do apologise, which have holes or huge marks on their first pages, where I'd officially dickered them in those long ago library games. Oh, the innocence. Nearly 40 years on, I wish we had music here, my much-loved dicker has been lost in the sands of time. Instead, says Helen, I'm around, where are you, Batesy? I'm around 50,000 words into a novel of my own. One day I truly hope somebody will dicker a copy of my book with my name on the cover. Once I stop having existential crises, plural, about whether it's going to be good enough to be released onto an unsuspecting public. Helen, you carry on writing and it will be released. And so, it'll be, I think, right royally dickered when it comes out. What would the R tune be that would be played for our correspondent there? Um, would it go into Manic Street Preachers, Design for Life, with the opening line, Libraries is... gave us power. Oh, gosh, power to the people. It's true, though, in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Which is why I'd always oppose any cutbacks to libraries. Right. OK, sister. <laughs> uh, Pippa in Gloucestershire says, hit us up. Thank you, Pippa. Uh, I remember this mousse, whack ingredients in the blender, put in ramekins, those little dishes we've all got too many of in the 1980s, bung in the fridge, absolutely delicious. You need to use Campbell's consomme as it sets in the fridge. You've got to remind people what this terrible, terrible dish was. Can you remember? It was Snaffle's Moose. Yeah. And apparently it featured in a letter to the Times yesterday. Uh, Margaret Thatcher used to serve it. She was known for a cuisine, of course. So it was Philadelphia cheese. Philadelphia cheese. Uh, curry powder. Now, it didn't specify mild, medium or hot. Just curry powder. And then an undiluted tin of beef consomme. Mm. Now, I'm not even sure you can get... Where do they exist still? Yes, I think you can still. Okay, get those. well, someone yeah. will know. Yeah. Well, Victoria says hearing about Maggie Thatcher's mystery starter brought back horrendous memories of my parents recreating the recipe as a lovely surprise for us at a family dinner on one of our visits. They kept saying, "You'll never guess what's in the bottom of the bowl." Absolutely disgusting. A real struggle to keep it down. All the while saying, oh my goodness, what an interesting starter. Wow, Philadelphia, who would have thought? Me and my sister still talk about it. It was served to all of us on separate occasions. Ooh. I think my parents thought it was the height of sophistication. It still brings back a feeling of nausea. But the good news is that Victoria's often felt that she'd like to chip into the podcast and it's taken Maggie's mystery starter to encourage her. I do, do you know what, I, it sounds absolutely disgusting, Jane, but but I do love those very simple kind of, you know, three ingredient recipes. 
my mum had one for a kind of sherry, a, a, a pudding thing. Mm. Oh, yeah. That was cream whipped to which you added a lot of sherry, like half a bottle. Mm. And then you lined up lots of ginger nuts in, oh, a, yeah, in a loaf. Yeah. And you spread all of the gooey, yes. creamy sherry stuff on. And the ginger nuts kind of sink into mm. it all. You put it in the fridge and then you get it out and slice it. And that was a pudding. Highly recommended. Yeah, it was quite something. I mean, really, really quite something. What was the overwhelming... Was it ginger? Was it alcohol? Alcohol. Was I it just, calories? Yep. Yeah, no, I just remember it being... I mean, the kind of pudding that, you know, as a, as a child would make you properly drunk. <laughs> it was a lot. Because obviously you're not burning off the alcohol. What was it called? Well, I don't know. Do you know I'll phone my mum and ask. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, creme a la piss, I don't know. Creme a la ginge, surely. <laughs> that sounds even worse. Oh, shit, does, God. Um, I'm sure you can get something for it. Right, um, this is from a listener who wants to talk about self-checkouts. Um, I don't like the self-checkout. I'd like to be served by a human, but then I'm an old fart. This correspondent says, I used to regularly visit my supermarket in our quiet market town early every Wednesday for my weekly shop. It was quiet at that time of day and it was always the same and indeed only person on the checkout. The lady was convinced she knew me. She had apparently known my husband years ago, but I had no recollection of her. And she was always overly familiar, telling me all about her medical complaints, commenting on my shopping and even questioned why I wasn't at work. Like all good comedy, uh, Carolina Hearn's sketch, it was based on truth. Um, I don't remember that Caroline Hearn sketch. Did she have one about a checkout? We talked about this yesterday. Oh, gosh. Are you all right? <laughs> I don't think I am. I do remember okay. now. Do you remember now? Yes. So it was just Caroline Hearn at the checkout and she would just make a, a, a facetious and funny comment about every single item that went through. And okay. it was very good. I, I might try and dig it out and put it on the Insta. I did. Okay, I'm, I'm back, in, back, the, I'm back, in, the back in the room. Our correspondent says it got to the point where I simply had to change my weekly routine and my shopping day as I couldn't bear the thought of having this uncomfortable interaction every week. Even if there were other checkouts open, she'd spot me and call me over to her or open her till up especially for me. I breathed a huge sigh of relief when scanning the shopping on the mobile phone became a thing at my supermarket and I was an enthusiastic and early adopter of the practice. Uh, please don't use my name, she says. <laughs> As you'll see, I could fairly easily be identified. Y yes, OK, I see your point. Right, OK, well, sorry to hear about your trouble at the uh, checkout. <laughs> and I think I do think it's one of those, it's very awkward and British, isn't it, when you meet someone who thinks they know you and you don't know whether they do or not, but you strongly suspect they've just got it wrong. And they persist in interacting with you. Interaction is difficult enough for most British people. Interacting with people that they don't know is a really big ask. But don't you find that quite often you can't place the person who you know you know, so you do that slightly kind of digging around conversation while you're trying to get a, a kind of a handle on where it might be. Where it might be in my life that I came yeah. across them. Because yeah. I find it happens more and more, especially because, you know, you do interview quite a lot of people in this line of work, and sometimes, because we see a lot of people on Zoom, so that doesn't make a, the same kind of recognition impression as it should do in real life so then if you ever do bump into them in real life I find that quite mm. a kind of hazy connection I can't really I can't quite remember who they are and what they do but if I've interviewed them in person I 
You can. I probably yeah. can. I have had some embarrassing encounters where I met people socially. I'd interviewed weeks before and I just didn't I didn't remember. Well, you couldn't even remember yesterday. I can't. No, I can't like remember. two minutes ago. I'm good. Now, be quiet. I'm going to read something out about the archers. Uh, this listener goes to sleep every night listening to us and the archers. Do you play them both at once? That would be quite complicated, wouldn't it? I wonder which one she plays first. Who cares? The archers or us? Anyway, just been listening to today's podcast and following recent chat about the lack of human-operated checkouts, I asked in two supermarkets local to me, Amersham, Buckinghamshire, why they have just gone. Apparently it's because they just can't get the staff. I'm not really sure what to say about this. In my experience of having student children, there are always young people after part-time jobs and they always seem to have copious numbers of staff filling shelves. Yes, there do seem to be staff in the shops, although not as many as there used to be. And you know when you want something in particular, I sometimes find it quite difficult to locate a member of staff who might assist me in my quest. Maybe you need to ask more nicely. <laughs> I'm always super polite. I needed a particular brand of polygrip for my mother the other day and it was completely out of stock. And I, you know, that is, that's the, it's a fixative dental thing. It was very difficult. Yeah, anyway, didn't get it. It's in disgrace. Mm. Let her down, let my family, whole family down. It's miserable. We're having quite a lot of very interesting correspondence about uh, living in expat communities and also what to do when you find yourself in a new place and you're a bit lonely and you can't find your tribe. Uh, so this one comes in from Australia. Uh, Hello team, I emigrated to Australia with my family at 47. It was hard initially to think about oneself and friendships when a whole family is going through separation and the same thing, obviously putting the children first. And I totally agree that when you emigrate, the expat community takes you in. It's because we all know what it feels like, as we do, to grieve relationships, parental sibling, lifelong friends. But in Sydney's eastern suburbs, there are many feeling the same and what happens is that all the barriers seem to go down. Uh, we have what's called Orphan Christmas, which means if you're not going home and your family isn't coming here, groups of people gather to celebrate together and if you ever see an orphan, you pick them up and in they come. Uh, and our correspondent goes on to say, on to the next topic of your lovely lady who's so smart and has tried all sorts. I totally agree that you need to say more. I left my lifelong friendships and I knew that there was no way I was settling for boring blokes. Can you see what I've done here? Yeah. People might think this is from a woman. But it's, it's not. It's from a man. It took me three to four years to find my tribe. In my first Christmas, I found myself Aussie style on the back porch with the menfolk. The talk was of mobile phone plans, their data and their cost. Hashtag not all men. No, uh, no hashtag not all men. Uh, that was the spur I needed to dig in, hunt out interesting people, ask key questions immediately, whatever, to sort the potential friends from the hard nose. I'm 13 years in and I have my tribe. It's still not as big as my UK tribe, who have remained steadfastly loyal and still turn up every year, but it's enough. Tell your listener you have to kiss a lot of frogs, be honest, say what you're looking for, invite people around a lot, there will be rejection but there's always someone in a local tribe who's bored with the sameness and you become a chance for them too. Super point at the end. Because there is bound to be somebody in the group at Zumba or the WI or the Ramblers Association or whatever who's actually thinking, God, we could do some new blood here. Yeah. And you might be just the ticket. So, Andrew, thank you very much indeed uh, for writing that. And I hope you don't mind that I started off on a pretense just to see what I catch I like, I've never heard that expression, orphan Christmas. No. Mm. And I guess um, 
you know, there'll be people doing that all over the world, wouldn't yeah. there? Yeah, there will be. Uh, can I just briefly return to supermarkets? Because we've got a good guest. It's Dame Prue Leith today. Um, listening to the supermarket checkout discussion reminded me of an incident in my lo- local supermarket, Morrison's, in Cromer. How wonderful, Cromer. Haven't been there for a while, but it's very, very bracing. I think, would you pick Cromer possibly as Britain's most archetypal seaside resort or town or old school am i being unfair i don't i mean i'm sure it's got its bijou boutiques and artisanal products and flat whites i'm just gonna let you dig this i wish i had started this for yourself about chroma now i'm not joining in we welcome chroma uh, lovely place <laughs> marie is there in chroma <laughs> I was so glad when my local checkout person in Morrison's in Cromer didn't comment on the contents of the elderly man's basket who was in front of me, as it contained, amongst other things, a tin of cockaleeky soup and some incontinence pants. I sometimes wish, says Marie, that I wasn't quite so observant. Yeah, I've had, I've had moments like that, Marie. Uh, but, you know, um, it will all be in incontinence pads, pants sooner or later, I suspect. I'm not a fan of cockaleeky. Uh, what is it? Is that chicken and leek? Yes, I think so. Yes. Yep. Mm. I thought I like a chicken and leek pie, so I don't know why I wouldn't like a chicken and leek soup. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I do not like savoury things encased in pastry. Okay. Uh, You're flying low, love. Again. These jeans are bust. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I picked the wrong moment to sort that out because there's a group of observers outside. I wonder what kind of podcast this is. <laughs> Okie dokie. Shall we move on to Prue Leith? Yes. Uh, it was lovely to see her today. Uh, she was in at Times Towers because the Times newspaper has uh, been conducting a health commission. So this is a year-long inquiry into the state of the health service and the health of the nation uh, that then reports in the paper. You can read all about it. It's not behind a paywall and comes up with uh, suggestions from the people that have been interviewed Um, And it's done in an incredibly thorough way. Rachel Sylvester, the journalist, has led the Education Commission and now the Health Commission. And one of the people whose expertise she's been dipping into is Prue Leith. Uh, So in case you don't know who Prue Leith is, uh, she's the founder of Leith's Restaurant and Cookery School. She did did that back in the 1970s in London. And she's gone on to have a hugely successful business career in food. She's also written eight novels along the way, a memoir and 14 cookbooks and we now know and love her as the jewellery bedecked judge of Bake Off. She always has a twinkle in her eye and she's quite saucy isn't she? She always as well I think dresses brilliantly in a kind of characterful way and she did tell me, I can't remember when it was but I interviewed her and she just said wear bright colours. You know older women do tend to shy away from bright colours. Why? Why not just, well I know but I I did pay attention because I did buy a bright yellow coat after I'd spoken to her don't worry very often. But I do think she's got a point. Why don't we just go for the colour? Because she does, and it really serves her well. Yeah, well, you're speaking my language. I've mm. come dressed as a traffic light today. Uh, Prue's also been vociferous about the need, as she sees it, for a change in our attitudes on laws on assistance assisted dying. Uh, We do get on to talk about that later on uh, in the interview. Uh, But we started by asking her how she would solve this nation's obesity crisis. Well, I think the best way to solve the obesity crisis is to start with children. A, because they are the ones who are getting 
obese the fastest, the section that really is in, in difficulty and going to get worse. So I think we need to do um, three things and the report gets gives quite a lot of this and I think they should go a little bit further. But my main thing is that the government already does three things that if they did it all over the country instead of in tiny little bits would make a huge difference. Free school meals, for a start, if they just made universally free school meals, that would be good. Up to the age of? All the way through school. 18. I would have it all the way through school. But that might be too expensive. And in fact, what this report suggests is, is for children on universal credit. So preschool meals make a difference. You know, there's a, there's a scheme called the HAF scheme, which is holiday activity something or other. And that, that's absolutely brilliant where it works, but it's in tiny patches. You know, it needs to be right across the country. And it's you take schools in fairly deprived areas or where there are a lot of free school meal children and you turn the school in the holidays into a kind of community hub and it belongs to the parents. So the parents come in, they've got somewhere to go, they get a decent meal, they, um, there are cooking lessons, children have sports and general activities. Because one of the problems we have in holidays is not only the children are going hungry, it's that they are in the street. There's nowhere else for them to go and there's no club or anything. So I think if you, if you extended that, it would be terrific. Do you think that the government uh, needs to take a much firmer line on tax interventions? So Absolutely. on sugar tax, on fat sure. taxes? I honestly think the only way we will make it acceptable for um, people who basically, not to put too much, it sounds a bit dismissive and I don't mean to be rude, but there are a large section of society basically lives on junk. And it's not their fault because they never learnt to cook at school, they never learnt to love good food and they've always had handheld street food and the children even more so. So I think, that, I think the real um, answer is what Henry Dimbleby suggested in his food strategy, which was that you tax sugar and salt very heavily but you tax it at the wholesale level so it's not that you're taxing the junk food but you're taxing the manufacturers who make it. So that if they want to put in a huge amount of sugar, it's going to co that chocolate bar will cost more. If they put in less sugar, reformulate their candy bar or whatever it is, it'll be more healthy. But yes, it'll mean that people who can least afford it are going to be without the cheap food that they're used to, or at least it's going to be more expensive for them to buy it. But... Henry's idea was that the tax would raise around about three billion pounds a year and that would be enough to do all the things that I've been talking about, to do the holiday activities at school, to, to, to give more money to um, people who really need it, to help them buy more healthy food, to be able to afford food that they otherwise couldn't afford, to do, you know, to do a whole lot of interventions that would make that transition from junk food to more healthy food, more acceptable. 
Intervention's the key word, mm. isn't it? And certainly uh, it then forms part of quite a long-standing debate within the Conservative Party about whether or not you are being nanny statish if you intervene. But actually, I mean, it's true, isn't it, that Henry Dimbleby left his position uh, advising the government because he wanted to be a more firm advocate asking them to intervene exactly. more. And his point is interesting, isn't it, that actually a lot of people do want intervention because we've they got do. to the stage of not understanding what food is doing. So would you support all of that? I, I would, and I, I, I don't know why we're all so frightened of the idea of a nanny state. Of course we don't want a sort of um, Putin-style um, dictatorship. But, you know, we don't object to the nanny state insisting that our children learn maths at school. Why would we object to schools um, having an obligation to teach children to love healthy food? It would save the nation a fortune. It would make the children happier. They'd live longer. Um, I don't think people would object to that. I think sometimes you need a nanny. You know, if the, if the parents can't or don't know how to feed their children properly... Maybe they need a nanny, the parents as much as the children. I don't. I think this nanny state nonsense is nonsense. It's just an excuse for not doing something. You clearly passionately believe in a sugar tax. I don't think Keir Starmer is very keen on it. Uh, the Conservative government haven't done anything about it. Um, who is going to impose the sugar tax? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping that Keir Starmer will think again because it is... I don't know how else you're going to get the money to do the things you need to do if you take away um, the ability to buy um, cheap food. And we can't go on eating nothing but junk. One of the, th the points I think you raised, which I think is really important, is that some people want a nanny state. And actually, a lot of manufacturers want this sort of regulation because they don't want to be the first in to make a healthy bar that's going to cost more money. Because they will lose out. But if everyone's doing but it. Everybody has to. Right. So there's a real benefit. A lot of regulation would be welcomed by the industry. I mean, they won't say that aloud, but when you talk to them individually, they say, well, you know, if the government makes us, then we'll have to do it. And, you know, when, when I was chair of the School Food Trust, we got the government to um, ban fizzy drinks from schools. The, the, the number of people who walked into my office from the industry saying, but, you know, you can't do that. Children love Coca-Cola. They love this, that, they love. And we went ahead and did it and managed to get it done. And what happened? Those companies immediately started thinking, well, as they're only, we only allowed 5% of any sugar. And the result was they all reformulated those drinks. And that that, do you remember, there was an explosion of drinks that was sort of, Basically, water, slightly yeah, flavoured, yeah. slightly flavoured drinks. And everybody got on the back of it. Everybody did it. And they were very quickly making more money by selling basically water than they had been by the fizzy drinks full of sugar. So with the Times Health Commission, which you've been part of mm -hmm. today, uh, it's being held in this hallowed building uh, <laughs> in floors way more important, far higher than the floor that we're on, Prue. Uh, who's been nodding away on panels and 
in the audience and witnessing the things that are being talked about who could actually affect change? Well, what was interesting is we had both the shadow health minister and the current current health secretary. So Wes Streeting and Victoria Uh, Atkins. Yes, exactly. And um, I was rather impressed with them both. I've always been impressed with Victoria because I think she's quite a punchy politician. And when but she was, her husband is the man in charge of. He works for the sugar industry, doesn't oh, he? Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh God, I didn't know that. Well, yeah. no reason not to be impressed by her, but you know, yeah. it's, it's a factor. Well, I, I have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris made the very interesting point that you cannot deal with anybody who you, you cannot get anywhere if you think you can do something in partnership with any of these big companies, because however much they'd like to at the top, do the right thing. In the end, it's their shareholders and the and the money that talks, and they never managed to they never managed to deliver. So he's all for just he says the same as I do. Actually, they wouldn't mind it if it was across the board. Right? Yeah, tell them all what to do. Tell them all what to do, and then they don't mind so much that they're. Pruleith is our guest as well as her thought. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. It's about food and health. Prue has also often spoken about her wish to see the laws about assisted dying change in the UK. And she's travelled to Oregon with her son, who's the Tory MP, Danny Kruger, to make a documentary on the subject because Danny's views are very different to hers. Uh, Prue, while we have you here, can we tap into some of your other areas of interest and expertise, particularly on assisted dying, where I know that you have uh, quite strongly held beliefs Uh about the need for this country to change its laws. What do you think needs to be in place to assuage the fears of people who think that any assisted dying will make more vulnerable people more vulnerable? I do think it's a serious question <laughs> and I do think we need really strong safeguards but the comfort I take is that for example in Oregon they've had an assisting assisted dying they legalized assisted dying over 25 years ago and they have never had a problem it is quite narrow and 
you could say it's discriminatory in a way because you can only apply for an assisted death if you are dying anyway. You know, you're, um, you've been diagnosed that you will be dead within a year. Um, you have to be over 18 and you have to be of sound mind. And that seems to have really worked. I mean, they've never had a case of somebody coming forward saying, you know, my uncle was bullied into um, asking for an assisted death. He didn't really want to die, but, you know, the family wanted his money or something. So I think it's slightly scaremongering, but I do think that there is another danger which we have to be very aware of, and it's a sort of more recent danger, um, which is, and we have to be very careful, cultures can change. And I did a documentary with my son, Daniel, who's a who's an MP, and he's very against my, he's quite on the other side, he is totally against the idea of assisted dying for these reasons, because he thinks that maybe vulnerable people would find themselves forced into it. But when we were in Canada, we had a discussion with some people about the the change in culture that could happen if it, if the NHS. Let's just this. I'm just talking completely. Just I'm not saying for a minute this is happening or even is likely to happen, but I do think there's a danger that it perhaps could, and that's that the bean counters in the NHS who are always strapped for cash and need to save money. If they looked at assisted dying versus long-term care in hospital, they would realise that knocking people off is the cheapest thing you could possibly do. Well, they wouldn't ever say that, but they would perhaps, perhaps it could become part of the discussion when you, when you invited people, you know, would, would you like the option of death? Well, I think you'd have to have something in place like you never ask the patient there's a protocol that you never ask the patient if they'd like to die. It must come from them or from them and their family or something. Maybe. I, we have to think about that. And when I said to Daniel, but look, this would never happen. This is England. You know, we would never, you know, the NHS is all about caring and loving and it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. And he said, well, you know, in Germany in the 1930s, a good proportion of the population of Germany, and Germany was, let, let's admit it, Germany was one of the most civilised, educated, I mean, it, it produced the most amazing philosophers. It was an amazingly civilised state. And yet a good proportion of their population got behind the idea that you should kill all Jews, all gypsies, all disabled people, all black people. But but it is it is an unpalatable but an unquestionable truth that people are living longer, dying more slowly of more complicated things. Mm -hmm. And only yesterday we were talking, weren't we, about raising the possibility of raising our pension age mm -hmm. to seventy one mm -hmm. for people born after the April of nineteen seventy. <laughs> um, yeah. We've got to confront this stuff. So you're absolutely right. I think we need to have some deeply uncomfortable. Uh -huh public conversations, don't we? We do. And we, and also we need to realise that, yes, we are... Live, well, actually, the um, longevity is slightly stalled. We're now not living quite as long as we were, you know... Uh, but, well, because but, we're obese. Because, yeah, because, <laughs> of course we're obese. But, but our health in old age has deteriorated tremendously. We are living much longer, but a much more unhealthy 
life. And so, we're, and of course, medicine has got incredibly expensive because where are all these wonderful things you can have done and, and scans and medical attention is very, very expensive. So, yes, old people are costing the country a fortune and what we need to do is make sure that they stay healthy. So one of the recommendations in this report, which I really like, is the idea of a digital health account that you are responsible you know, it won't work for everybody because some people can't really can't get on with their phones. Is the long and the short of it? I'm nearly one of them. You know, sometimes I want to throw the bloody thing out no, the so window. We've all been there. <laughs> but I think if we could free up doctors because people can book their appointments online, just like you can book your hairdresser online, and you can see your own health sta- status, and you can be responsible for your own health. You, you know, I just think that. That idea of putting the responsibility, making not just booking appointments, but seeing test results. And and it is strange, isn't it, that our phone can often tell us so many things about our health from apps mm. we've downloaded yeah, exactly. or not downloaded. Yeah. You know, mine tells yeah. me how many, you know, steps, steps I've taken, how yeah. much I've slept, all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, and that's, exactly. that's a odd. lot of that could be... It's a commercial activity, not, not an NHS activity. And it can be personalised. And if you think of, you know, um, organisations like Zoe, which at the moment are rather expensive, but you can have some your blood mon- monitored all the time and then told, look, you know, lay off the... The, the cheese. The cheese or the cream or the... Don't, don't eat broccoli or something. Or, or don't have a magnificent celebration cake. Yes, exactly. Yes, so and we can't that? let you go without just, just a couple of nods to, to Bake Off, Prue. <laughs> yeah. um, will you stay with Bake Off just as long as you possibly can? Do you still love it? I do still absolutely love it. I don't want to stay so long that I fall over on the... You know, I just don't want to make a fool of myself and I don't want to be there beyond when I'm really enjoying it and the public like me and I think I'm not really perhaps in the best position to say when I've got there because I, you know very many old ladies who still think that they are absolutely on it. Now, and can then, I say it's mainly old men who think that? <laughs> far, far fewer older ladies. Yes, probably. I think you'd like to be honest about that, please. Yeah, yeah, so you'd like I'd, someone to just tap you on the yes, shoulder. Yes, yeah. and I, I think my children might or my, or my husband. Mm. But I do still love it and, um, and I'm enjoying it and I'm going to have... To, can I give a quick plug to my new show? Yes, you can. I can. You can always cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> Crew, we're going to leave it in. <laughs> On the 24th of this month, there's going to start my new series, which is for ITV, and it's called <laughs> Prulith's Cotswold Kitchen. Mm. And it's, is it set in the Cotswolds? It's set in my kitchen. It's right. genuinely in my kitchen. Is it? Yes, okay. It's really that's, in my kitchen. That's good. So it's not a fake kitchen. It's not a fake kitchen. It's my okay. kitchen. And it's been such fun because it took two... It's a 10-week series. And it took two weeks to film. And I can't tell you the joy of just w- being woken up by Bambi, who's done my makeup for years, <laughs> knocking on the door with a cup of tea at 8 o'clock in the morning and saying, get up, it's time for makeup. Um you know, everybody's downstairs working. Instead of having to get up at quarter to five and drive to Pinewood or something to film Bake Off. So I really loved yeah. working at home. That well, that terrific. does sound pretty cushy. Uh, can I just ask, Did were you slightly upset by Sandy Toxvig saying that Bake Off bored her? She's basically made her brain atrophy because it was watching, <laughs> literally watching meringues try. <laughs> and, and watching meringues try. Yes. She's yeah. so funny, Sandy. She was on my programme. She was just, we had an absolute hoot. She's lovely. Um, 
Uh, no, I wasn't upset by it because, of course, I understand it. I mean, Sandy's one of the cleverest women you'll ever meet. But and, you're clever. Yeah, but I didn't have to do... You know what I... You think what I do in Bake Off. I, I walk on, I eat cake, I tell them what I think of it, I walk off and I get paid. I mean, <laughs> I don't have you to... See, you're clever. You've got that job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I spend hours... Uh, in, on my own, I'm, I've, I've written two books in my, uh, no, three books in my bake-off time. <laughs> and uh, and actually, I don't believe um, Sandy was really bored with bake-off because although she had, you see, the thing is the presenters have more time with the bakers. And I'm so good, Grace, so I'd quite like that. I, I enjoy it. But so, you know, but I, I don't think Sandy was so bored because she's, she, she and I shared a wonderful um, green room in this posh house, which was where we, where we filmed Bake Off, and, um, which was in the library. And so we had the most wonderful selection of books and she would do, you know, she knits little figures and dresses them beautifully and knitted. Did you know she's a knitter? Which she sells for charity. So she made lots of those. She lo she wrote a few scripts. She did a lot of other things. I mean, I can see that for some people, as clever as Sandy, um, watching Meringue Dry is perhaps a bit heavy. But I think she just liked she liked the joke. I don't think she was really bored. Prue Leith uh, talking about her ex colleague Sandy Toxvig and uh, saying really that Sandy kind of had four different jobs while she was on the payroll of just one job, and that is clever. Yeah. I didn't know she was a knitter, Sandy. <laughs> did you not? No, neither did I. I didn't have a down for a knitter. No. Well, maybe that's something that I could get you for Christmas. I could buy, at presumably, an extortionate rate, because some of the money would go to charity, uh, one of her little knitted dolls. Would you like that? No. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't. Back to the drawing board for me. <laughs> when my big birthday comes up in June, Fee, I don't want that. <laughs> do you know what? It's so tempting to now buy that. Please. Please don't do that. <laughs> okay. We, I can't, I, as you know, I what? love charity. Yes. And I, there's no bigger fan of Sandy Toxic, but I don't want one of her small knitted objects. I really don't. I'd like a boat or a pony. Do you know what? The more you say it, the more you're going to get one. I know what I'm doing on my tube journey home. And uh, what, what charity would you like me to donate the money to? I love so many charities that it's impossible to pick one. Okay. Do you know the name of a charity? <laughs> Just think of one. Quick, quick, quick. It's very unfair and it would be unfair to all the other charities. Okay. Uh, right, we're at Jane and Feet on the Instagram. We're going to put up a, a copy of the book before the end of the week. Uh, we're going to put a copy of the book next to one of Jane's apples and you'll understand why we're going to do that uh, when you see the picture. Yeah, it is small. Even I even I think it. it's short. When it arrived, it's like, what? It's a rip off this. <laughs> no, but, I didn't think that. <laughs> but uh, but Jane does have huge apples. That's true. <laughs> right. Thank you for uh, indulging us, uh, and keep the emails coming because there's an email special uh, which we're recording tomorrow, but will be made available on Friday. So there is time if you want to shoehorn, bustle your way in uh, to the email special tomorrow. Jane and Fee at Times Radio. Good night.
You did it. Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical ramblings, otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. <laughs> our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast executive producer. It's a man, it's Henry Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now, if you want even more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at three o'clock Monday until Thursday every week, and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day, as well as a genuine genuinely interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects. Thank you for bearing with us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com